Hello and welcome to Max Politics. This is Ben Max from Gotham Gazette, a publication of Citizens Union Foundation. Thanks very much for tuning in here for this episode of the show. We're speaking here on Wednesday, December 21st, 2022, in our final shows of the year and a lot to discuss about what's happened in New York politics this year in 2022 and look ahead to 2023. And we're doing a bit of that here today. My guest is Congressman-elect Daniel Goldman, a Democrat who is about to represent New York's new 10th Congressional District in the U.S. House of Representatives, the district which was home to a very crowded and competitive primary that Dan Goldman won in August, as you may recall, includes much of lower Manhattan and a big slice of Brooklyn. The neighborhoods include the East and West Villages, the Lower East Side, Chinatown, Tribeca, Battery Park City, the Financial District, parts of downtown Brooklyn, Gowanus, Park Slope, Sunset Park, Red Hook, Borough Park, and a couple of others that I probably didn't list. As you may recall, Dan Goldman served in 2019 as the lead House counsel for the impeachment investigation of President Donald Trump for abusing his office for personal gain regarding aid to Ukraine. Prior to that, Dan Goldman spent about 10 years as an assistant U.S. attorney in the Southern District of New York. Listeners may also remember that Mr. Goldman narrowly defeated Assemblymember Yuli New in the Democratic primary, and there was consideration by New and the Working Families Party that they may run in the general election, but they declined to do so. And Mr. Goldman won the general election over a Republican opponent by a very wide margin. Also in that notable primary field for this open congressional seat, which doesn't happen too often, were Congressman Mondaire Jones coming down from his Hudson Valley seat to pursue this one, City Councilmember Carlina Rivera, Assemblymember Joanne Simon, former Congresswoman Liz Holtzman, and for a brief time, former Mayor Bill de Blasio, among others. But Dan Goldman came out victorious, and he's here now to talk about his transition period, getting ready to take office here in January his priorities for entering the House, what kind of impact he hopes to have working in the minority, and under the leadership, we should note, of Brooklyn's Hakeem Jeffries, the incoming House Democratic leader taking over for outgoing Speaker Nancy Pelosi. And we'll get to a few other things as well. Congressman-elect Dan Goldman, welcome. Thank you for being here and coming back on the show. How are you? I'm great. Thanks so much for having me, Ben. Really good to be here with you. Thanks for taking the time. Good to chat with you as you uh, get ready to to actually get into office. I'm sure it's felt like a like a pretty long period. I know it's been very busy, um, but but how's how's the last uh, number of months going as you've been getting ready to actually enter Congress after, you know, I guess the race the race was the the primary was called in early September. You weren't sure what kind of general election it would be for a little while, but you've had several months here to to get ready. How's that period been? It's been great, and we've hit the ground running. Um, you know, the general election, as you pointed out, was not nearly as competitive as the the primary, so it gave us a couple of months to really start digging into doing the work that uh, I really want to do as a representative of the tenth district and. Um, I've been traveling all around the district, trying to meet as many people as I can, dig into many of the issues that are on the minds of our constituents, uh, and really get up to speed as to you know what what the issues are that need to be tackled and how I can represent the constituents of this district um, in the best way possible. And and I view 
you know, every single citizen, every single uh, voter, every single child, every single family in this district uh, to be of incredible value and uh, want to increase the opportunities for everybody. And so I've really enjoyed having uh, a little bit of extra time to before I move into office to start doing the actual work. And we will get back to a lot of that in just a minute. But first, I want to ask you about um, some of the big news of the week related to the New York uh, upcoming New York congressional delegation that you'll be a part of. There was a bombshell report in The New York Times this week about uh, fellow congressman elect George Santos, Republican from uh, largely Long Island district, uh, that he has apparently fabricated a great deal of his resume, his life story, among other things. And you had a, a, a pretty serious reaction to that reporting calling for an investigation by the Eastern District of New York. What do you think should be investigated there? Um, and, and what's your concerns about George Santos and what's gone on here? Well, I think what the New York Times reported in a, a really deeply reported story um, is startling. Uh, it's truly remarkable that uh, if these allegations are true and, and Santos has not commented on them nor denied them, uh, that he is just a complete fraud. And, you know, we can't have that as a representative of New York in Congress. Um, at a minimum, uh, it appears as if he made false statements to the FEC in, in his public disclosures. Um, and that is a federal crime. But it also may rise to the level of a conspiracy to defraud the United States by interfering in a lawful election through uh, intentional disinformation and misinformation that uh, promulgated by George Santos. And that's a charge that Robert Mueller levied against uh, the two in two Russian, two indictments of uh, about a dozen Russians each in terms of infiltrating and interfering in the 2016 election. That's also a charge that the Select Committee on January 6th referred to the Department of Justice related to Donald Trump and his associates' efforts to overturn the 2020 election. You know, you'd, you'd have to dig into the facts to see if there is really a case to be made. But the point is that, uh, you know, this is not just uh, politics as usual. This is someone who completely defrauded the voters in his district. And if these allegations are true, uh, the real question is whether, you know, the Republican Party is going to adopt him. Uh, and unfortunately, this type of misinformation and disinformation is all too common in today's Republican Party. Uh, and I, I hope I'm surprised uh, to see a, a strong reaction from Republican leadership. But my expectations are very low, uh, given the company that George Santos is about to keep. Mm -hmm. And this is the third congressional district of New York, largely Nassau County, a little slice of Queens. Um, so we'll see. If there's any information forthcoming uh, from investigators or from uh, Democrats or Republicans in the House in this last week or so of uh, this term or in the new term, um, and we'll see where that goes. Uh, Mr. Santos put out a, a statement from an attorney that that said almost nothing other than the, you know accusing the New York Times of being an enemy of his. Uh, didn't really address the allegations at all, as you indicated. Um, so we'll see. We'll see what happens there. Um, 
Say a little bit more, you know, you won your race here on uh, your work in uh, the first Trump impeachment, on your work as a former prosecutor, your focus on issues related to upholding American democracy. Um, As you look to enter Congress here in the House minority, uh, albeit a slim minority, and we really don't know what's going to happen with the Republican House speaker race here, that's still very much in flux as we speak here on December 21st. But as you're looking to enter the minority on these very issues of um, threats to democracy, of Republican election denialism, of Donald Trump's hold on much of the base of the Republican Party and many of its elected officials related to uh, his lies about the 2020 election and more. How are you thinking about going into Congress to focus on those issues and the impact that you may or may not be able to have? Well, that's certainly going to be a focus of mine, um, you know, certain, not the exclusive focus, but something that I, I want to make sure that I follow through on and use my experience leading the impeachment investigation, my experience as, you know, an investigator uh, in, in my prior career to uh, warding off what appears to be uh, significantly overreaching, uh, frivolous, and politicized investigations that uh, the Republican uh, incoming Republican majority has signaled that they will engage in. Um, this is, you know, a, a threat. I think, in in many respects, to our democracy, when they start talking about impeaching a cabinet secretary or even a president simply because they disagree with that person's policies. Um, Policy disagreements are not grounds for impeachment. You need to have treason, bribery, or high crimes and misdemeanors. And my experience in that, I think, um, I hope to use to, you know, fend off some of those, uh, some of those overreaching investigations. But I also think we need to emphasize, uh, you know, some critical legislation um, that we can't be we can't shy away from uh, pushing forward, uh, including the the remainder of the Protecting Our Democracy Act, uh, which I actually helped Adam Schiff draft before I left Congress in early 2020. Uh, sadly, it will need some updating now after January 6th, but there are critical reforms uh, to codify many of the norms that Donald Trump just busted while he was in office. Um, We need to have more streamlined enforcement of congressional subpoenas so the tactics of delay, delay, delay don't work. Um, We need to, you know, make sure that uh, we are preventing retaliation against witnesses and whistleblowers. Um, There there are any number of different things that, that we need to push forward. And another thing that I really want to promote and and work very hard on, especially at the outset, is expanding the uh, application of the Judicial Code of Ethics to Supreme Court justices. Right now, as as many know, uh, there is a Judicial Code of Ethics, but it only applies to federal uh, courts of appeals and district courts. It does not even apply to Supreme Court justices. And what I want to work on is not only expanding that code of ethics to the Supreme Court, but also creating an independent investigative body for the entire judiciary that can investigate um, possible violations of the code of ethics and, if necessary, refer uh, those investigations either to Congress or potentially even to 
uh, criminal authorities. Uh, that is a critical component to uh, regaining the legitimacy of the Supreme Court, which has been decimated by really horrific opinions in the Dobbs case overturning Roe, uh, in the gun cases, in the environmental cases. So there needs to be a significant check on these justices and their conflicts of interest and even lying under oath during their uh, Senate Judiciary Committee confirmations. And, and do you feel you feel like there there was there are things there that immediately could be looked at that there was definitively lying under oath by current Supreme Court justices? Well, I think if you look at um, their testimony, uh, one thing people don't realize is during his Senate Judiciary confirmation hearing, Clarence Thomas expressly stated that there is a right to privacy in the Constitution. Uh, We now know from 30 years of his rulings that he has consistently ruled against that uh, constitutional framework. Uh, That's obviously 30 years old. I don't think there's much that's going to be done with that. But, you know, Brett Kavanaugh was quite unequivocal about upholding Roe um, and he voted to reverse it. Um, You know, I think that it's important to provide a check for, you know, these justices to know that there's someone who could look at it. The most egregious example is Ginny Thomas. And well, that, right. That's, that seems like a very different category, right? The, the sort of ethics questions. I, I think we still don't know some of how Brett Kavanaugh's debts got paid off. You know, there's there's some of these things that are are sort of a different category than maybe bumping up against the edge of, you know, how exactly they phrase their response on questions related to Roe in front of the committee versus things related to Clarence Thomas and his wife's activities and what's disclosed and not disclosed and how he's ruling on cases that she may be involved with. You know, there's sort of different gradations here, right? Yeah. And I think that's, you know, the the code of ethics as it stands lays out what is uh, what the requirements, the ethical requirements are for judges. And right now, I mean, look, you know, you may recall, Ben, that the recent reporting in The New York Times about, you know, an individual who was very much f- part of the far right uh, legal movement, uh, who said that he knew about a, an opinion from Justice Alito in 2014 uh, that was going to be favorable to him. And the New York Times did an exhaustive uh, investigation and looked at contemporaneous documents, spent months doing it. Several uh, Sheldon Whitehouse and and Hank Johnson in in Congress, I believe, wrote a letter to the Supreme Court asking for their response to this allegations, you know, on behalf of Justice Alito, rather than actually even look at the materials that the New York Times had uh, gathered. The the counsel for the Supreme Court simply wrote a letter back saying that Justice Alito says that that didn't happen. That's that's insufficient. And if that is going to be the degree of investigation into really serious allegations uh, related to Supreme Court justices, then our our court system is failing and the legitimacy of it continues to deteriorate and is called into question. And that's why we are going to need to have some sort of independent investigative body that will actually take a look at the details rather than just have a counsel for the Supreme Court quote what the justice says in his defense without any evidence necessarily uh, you know, to support it and without addressing the evidence to the contrary. 
Now, you can obviously, as you indicated, work on these efforts, but in a Republican-led House, um, you're working from the minority here come January for the next two years, um, at least. Um, what's the best hope for how you elevate some of these issues if you don't have willing partners on the Republican side to advance some of these uh, priorities of yours? Is it about which committees you're on and how you use your voice in in certain hearings that Republicans might call certain hearings and then in the minority you're using your voice to make counterpoints, uh, as we've obviously seen, no matter who's in power uh, from the minority party, sort of using those opportunities um, uh, strategically. Uh, how are you thinking about using, you know, using your role in the minority? And do you have a sense of of what committees you might be able to sit on? Um, well, there's a lot to to that question. Uh, let me just take it one by sure. one. The first is, you know, I think that using the platform uh, that I have, whether it be on committees or otherwise, to um, advocate for, you know, some of these really basic and seemingly obvious reforms that are should not be partisan is, is going to be one aspect of it. But let's also remember that the House, the Republicans have a very slim majority in the House. And that majority relies entirely on a number of new members who won in uh, districts that Joe Biden won in 2020. Um, these are districts that are not interested in you know, the far right craziness of Jim Jordan or Marjorie Taylor Greene or Lauren Boebert or you know, what have you from the Freedom Caucus. They're interested in actual results and in having a representative who's uh, advocating on their behalf and and governing. And at some point, uh, those members are going to have to be able to bring um, real wins, real legislation back to their districts if they are going to hold on to those districts. So there is going to be an appetite at some point from Republicans to uh, work across the aisle and actually get stuff done um, because, you know, there's a Democratic Senate, there's a Democratic president. If there are zero results that they can tout in their elections in 2024, they're in big trouble. So I think there will be a lot of opportunities to work with Republicans, um, you know, in a way that uh, it may not, you know, exist if it were uh, a Republican Senate and a Republican presidency as well. And so I will look for those opportunities um, and I will certainly be speaking with Republican colleagues um, in areas where I think we may find uh, agreement. And some of the agreement, Ben, you know, it may be on the end result, but for very different reasons. Uh, I, I, I think there's probably some appetite on this Supreme Court issue to make some progress. Uh, I think there may be an appetite uh, at the end of the day on, you know, uh, renewable energy, which is a pathway to energy independence for Republicans that they tout, and obviously is climate saving for, you know, on the Democratic side, that's so important and something that will be a huge part of, you know, my platform as I head on into Congress, where I am trying to focus on protecting our families, our freedoms and our future. And I think there's a lot of uh, there are a lot of avenues that uh, will be open to pursue in terms of legislation. So it's going to be 
uh, I think on both uh, both counts, both in terms of the committee work, um, but also in terms of legislation. Yeah, that's interesting. It'll be very interesting to see uh, to track how that goes and and how this Republican uh, majority comes together, who the speaker is, and how they actually function. Uh, obviously, uh, with a very narrow majority and some of their soul searching coming out of the uh, election and and some of Donald Trump's hold on on many uh, members of that delegation. Um, they, they have a lot to figure out there. And I think that'll be interesting to see how that approach works out, whether there whether are uh, our deals to be to be made in these next couple of years or whether there's uh, a lot of focus on sort of the investigations of the Biden administration, the Biden family and, and all of that. Um, do you have a sense of what committees you might uh, get a chance to sit on? Uh, we don't know yet. Um, as you mentioned, the Republicans uh, haven't even settled on who their speaker is, and the committee assignments are usually uh, the follow in in January, the establishment of leadership. Um, so we don't know how many slots there will be on the different committees, and we don't yet know what committees. I have asked to be on uh, the Judiciary Committee. Um, obviously, you know, in my no surprises there. <laughs> yeah. I mean, 10 years as a prosecutor in the Department of Justice, um, I've worked a lot on criminal justice reform prior to that, uh, helping, uh, contributing to Michelle Alexander's book, The New Jim Crow, which is really the seminal book on inequalities in our criminal justice system. And then, of course, the impeachment investigation, where I sat across Jim Jordan for, you know, 17 depositions, um, closed door depositions, and, um, you, you know, was able to to, I think, effectively prove our case, notwithstanding his efforts. So uh, I would be very excited to, you know, take him on, um, challenge uh, some of these investigations that um, our thinly veiled efforts to completely, you know, undermine uh, the president and the administration um, through attacking his family and attacking some of the policies um, of the administration in politicized investigations. So there's there's a lot of uh, room, I think, both in terms of legislation, but also in investigative work on that committee that I, I hope to be able to participate in. Is um uh, Democratic leader, incoming Democratic leader, Hakeem Jeffries, going to be a champion for you in that effort? I mean, those are those are coveted slots on the Judiciary Committee. Yeah, look, I think, um, you know, I've had really great conversations uh, with Hakeem. I'm, I'm really excited as, as the entire caucus is about uh, the the transfer, passing on the baton from Speaker Pelosi, who's, I think, unquestionably the greatest speaker in in modern history, uh, to Hakeem, who's um, just, you know, been a a powerhouse in Congress for his time there and is uh, is is going to be terrific. So um, I've I've been very clear to, you know, to Hakeem and leadership that uh, I want to be a team player and do uh, whatever it is that they want me to do. Um, obviously, you know, I have specialized experience in, in dealing with some of these democracy issues, impeachment, investigations. And so hopefully I can utilize those skills to to help the party and, and help the country, because I think we we need to expose uh, for what it is, what they are, these investigations that seem to be coming, you know, attacking uh, the president's civilian son, um, going after, um, you know, uh, uh, all sorts of, 
um, extremist uh, views perpetrated or perpetuated through these investigations. And so I'd love to be able to um, poke what will likely be significant holes in them and make sure that uh, the American people see these investigations for what they are. Is since you raise it and and also a, a good question either way, is there from what you've seen, is there any legitimacy to um, a House investigation of Hunter Biden's business dealings and how he may or may not have either tried to involve his father or use his father as leverage or any number of other things that are being alleged or or some even reportedly being already looked into by law enforcement officials. Is there any legitimate reason that you've seen for a House investigation of Hunter Biden's dealings? So the, the U.S. attorney in Delaware has been conducting a criminal investigation into Hunter Biden for a couple of years now. Um, that investigation should proceed uh, without fear or favor. And, you know, if a crime was committed, um, then just like every other citizen, you know, uh, Hunter Biden should be charged um, if the facts and the evidence uh, prove beyond a reasonable doubt that a crime was committed. But that's very, very different than a congressional investigation uh, into you know, Hunter Biden's business affairs. He was a civilian, has always been a civilian, unlike Donald Trump's kids who worked in the White House and used those connections very clearly uh, for their own personal gain and business purposes. And I'm pointing directly to Jared Kushner's receipt of a $2 billion investment from Saudi Arabia after he spent an inordinate amount of time uh, with the Saudi leadership in his official capacity. Uh, that's not what Hunter Biden was doing. I have not seen any evidence to implicate Joe Biden in any wrongdoing. Um, I will be interested to look at what evidence uh, the Republicans purport to have. Um, but, you know, this is a, an attack on Hunter Biden, uh, who has been very open about a drug problem that he has had and that was, you know, cause that is the subject of some of the attacks on him and the investigations, which is just completely improper. Uh, but there's been no indication that this involved Joe Biden whatsoever. And it is, you know, a, a complete fishing expedition uh, designed to somehow apply wrongdoing of Hunter Biden, if there is any, and I don't know, to the president um, in a way that is unfounded right now and, and inappropriate. So we'll look at the evidence. We'll see what's there. Um, but I don't believe that this is a legitimate investigation for Congress to undertake. OK, so let's come back to the district now. Uh, since winning the primary, um, you've been uh, traversing this this vast and, and diverse district. Say a little bit about how you've been um, reaching out, especially to communities that didn't necessarily support you in that very crowded primary um, thinking, you know, specifically predominantly Latino and Asian communities in the district. Um, there's obviously a big stretch of um, the sort of white progressive Brooklyn Brownstone belt there in the district that also um, had other candidates, you know, atop their ballots. Um, how, how have you been not only sort of 
developing more relationships in the district, but specifically reaching out to certain communities, um, you know, that you want to get to know better, that you want to get to know you better, and that you want to make sure you're putting their priorities uh, towards the top of your list as you enter Congress? It's a great question. And and it's actually something that I've really enjoyed diving into. Um, I've been probably spending the majority of my time on the Lower East Side, Chinatown, Sunset Park, and Red Hook, which are traditionally the areas that are underserved uh, and underrepresented. Um, as you know, uh, from following politics, uh, politicians often focus on where their voters and where their donors are. Uh, and I am, am not uh, a fan of that politics as usual. Um, I wanna be out in the communities that are not as engaged, who need more assistance uh, and need better representation. So I've been spending the majority of my time in those communities. Um, I'm really excited about the uh, staff that we've hired for the district office. Um, we have an incredibly experienced and diverse staff that is very language accessible and culturally competent. Um, a number, uh, several of my staff members uh, live and grew up in Sunset Park. Um, and speak the various languages that are there. Um, we have uh, my district director, John Blasco, was formerly the chief of staff for Harvey Epstein, uh, grew up on the Lower East Side uh, in NYCHA housing. Uh, his mom still lives in, over in uh, the Jacob Reese houses. And he's a fixture in the community over there who um, I'm thrilled to uh, brought on to head up my district office. So we, both I and my team, are going to be out in the district um, constantly because it is incredibly important, I think, for, for me, especially as someone who has not held elected office before, to meet uh, constituents in all corners of the district so I really can understand you know, what their concerns are, what their needs are. And one of the pillars of, of my representation is going to be focusing on families. I'm going to be focusing a lot on housing. There is such a shortage of housing uh, in this district and in this city. Um, and the housing, the public housing we do have is uh, failing, uh, both in terms of management, but also the, the conditions. And I'm speaking mostly about NYCHA housing. I have 26 NYCHA developments in my district. I've already met with the Tenants Association leaders uh, for just about every single one of them. Uh, and that's a huge priority of mine. So uh, we are going to be really present. I've, I've prioritized uh, putting more of my budget in the district than in Washington, D.C., which is uh, very unconventional. But it's incredibly important that everybody feel like they have strong representation and that their concerns are being heard uh, and, they're, and, they're, and being met. Mm -hmm. Any priorities for NYCHA that you have other than and trying to get a, a, a big boatload of, of funding allocated, which seems to be uh, pretty challenging and pretty elusive, um, even when Democrats uh, have control in, in Congress? Any any priorities uh, around NYCHA that have come to the fore? 
Yes, um, th- there are many, many priorities uh, with NYCHA. Yeah, we, we could Obviously. have a whole 40 minute conversation on NYCHA. Yeah. <laughs> yes, exactly. And, and you know, what, what I realize is, you know, I'm going to, Nydia Velasquez, as you know, um, represented a significant portion of my district and has been such a strong advocate for our public housing. Uh, I've spoken uh, numerous times with her and I'm going to join up with her and in, in her, it's her bill. Uh, to provide more uh, funding for uh, for NYCHA federally that uh, we are going to continue to push. But separate from that, um, you know, I think we need to make sure that there's transparency about what's going on within NYCHA. Uh, there's accountability so that the money that is coming through NYCHA is used properly. Um, and we also need to be creative in making sh- and making sure that management is uh, working better, that when people have issues, they're addressed. I-, I cannot tell you how many developments I've been to where people are complaining about mold, about rats, about uh, no gas. It- it's unacceptable conditions, and you don't need a federal bill to be able to uh, resolve those so that people can live with dignity who live in, in NYCHA developments. Um, so I will be a, a strong proponent to make sure that I use my experience in oversight uh, and investigations to hold NYCHA's feet to the fire to make sure that the residents are getting the proper services that they deserve. And then the last thing that I've been engaging uh, a number of the the NYCHA tenants about is this uh, preservation trust, um, Mm -hmm. which, as you know, was passed this past year to provide a funding stream for capital improvements in NYCHA, given that uh, federal funding has been uh, so evasive and elusive. Um, And what I'm finding is a lot of the the tenants... um, you know, don't yet fully understand what it is. Um, And so I want to work with uh, all of the developments to make sure that everybody has the information that they need uh, in order to make a decision as to whether they want to opt into the preservation trust. Yeah, that those are going to be very uh, important upcoming votes um, at, at different nature developments around the future of those developments and whether they are opting in. Um, I just have a couple more minutes with you here. Congressman-elect Dan Goldman joining me to discuss the transition period since he won the very competitive Democratic primary that happened in August and was called in early September, and then the general election by a very wide margin in the new 10th Congressional District of New York, which includes a whole big stretch of lower Manhattan and into Brooklyn. Um, You have uh, said one of your top priorities is going to be related to climate and environmental justice. What's at the top of the list there? This is obviously a district um, that has on both the Manhattan and Brooklyn sides, a lot of communities that have um, borne the brunt of environmental justice issues and pollution. Uh, it's it's areas of the city that are, that are prone to flooding um, along the East River. Um, but what's a, what are some priorities going into Congress that you hope to work on, uh, even in the minority, uh, again, um, on these issues? Well, the, the, there are a number of different things. Some of them are local. Some of them you know, will require federal involvement. Um, one area that I've been um, working extensively on already is uh, the renovation of the BQE, um, which is really an opportunity to be a leader 
in, uh, you know, development of our highways, our roadways, consistent with our climate goals and recognizing that this is an opportunity to kind of re-envision how uh, our our highways, our throughways are used um, to promote our, our climate goals. Uh, I've joined with other elected officials in the in the area to call for there to be no more than two lanes of highway um, because the data is pretty convincing that um, if you have more space on the highways, you will incentivize driving. If you have less space on, on highways, you will incentivize public transportation, which reduces our carbon output. Um, and so that's incredibly important. That's a big project that's coming uh, down the pipe very soon. Mayor Adams is leading a a charge to actually get that done, which I support, but we have to make sure that um, we're really taking into consideration our, our climate needs. Um, I talked about renewable energy as an area yep. that I'd like to pursue with, uh, with Republican uh, colleagues in the House. Um, the best way, of course, to have energy independence is to make our energy at home. Um, there is, uh, I met with a, uh, a company that is uh, that has a contract to create uh, offshore wind farms uh, right off of uh, Sunset Park and, and Red Hook area, or more Sunset Park, um, which I think is is really important uh, new renewable energy investments. Uh, and I've been really focused on make sure that the um, that the local community gets first uh, first opportunity at some of the jobs that this, that will be created. Uh, because we really need to be focused on on our underserved communities that have traditionally borne the brunt of environmental um, justice issues, and that's going to be something that I'm I'm really focused on, uh, making sure that our, our those communities who who have uh, suffered from environmental injustice are properly represented at the table. Mm-hmm. Let me ask you a couple quick things before I let you go here. Um, you mentioned, obviously, one would hope, uh, meeting and talking regularly with both Hakeem Jeffries and Nadia Velasquez, your colleagues, uh, and of course, Jeffries will be the House Democratic leader very shortly. Uh, you mentioned staffing up. You mentioned meeting with lots of uh, NYCHA tenant leaders and, and I'm sure other community leaders. Um, anyone else that's been particularly sort of helpful to you as you've had this transition period? Any um, you know, opponents in your in your primary that you've met with or uh, anyone else out there in politics that's helped you. You obviously um, have an extensive resume, but as you as you've noted, you haven't been a politician. You haven't been an elected official. Anyone else that's been helpful to you in this transition period um, as, as you make this adjustment? I think there are numerous people that have uh, been helpful. I've been um, very open about leaning on city and state elected officials to um, you know, help guide me to inform me about what the issues are on the ground. Uh, I've been working very closely with Joanne Simon, who was also in my race on the BQE renovation project, along with Lincoln Ressler and Andrew Gernardis, city councilman and the state senator in that in that area. And we've we've uh, we've been really working well together. Uh, I've been working with Carlina Rivera, another uh, opponent of mine, on some of the housing issues on the on the Lower East Side, where where her uh, city council district is. 
Um, you know, Brian Cavanaugh, State Senator Brian Cavanaugh in Lower Manhattan has been a, a real help to me in understanding a lot of the housing issues. Uh, he's the, the chair of the Housing Committee in the State Senate and is really an expert on that area. And I've leaned on him heavily. State Senator Brad Hoyleman, who was an early supporter of mine, has uh, been really helpful in, in guiding things. And then, you know, Jerry Nadler is, is the dean of the New York delegation, uh, and he's been incredibly helpful. Um, he's, you know, as I travel around the sort of uh, lower west side of, of Manhattan, um, where, which used to be Jerry's district, uh, it is uh, really impressive the degree to which the, the uh, constituents down there uh, admire and appreciate all that Jerry has done. And, and he's provided me with a great roadmap for how to do uh, really meaningful constituent services and make sure that I'm incredibly responsive to, to all of the needs of the district. So mm-hmm. it's great to have, you know, all of these uh, veteran elected officials, um, both in the New York congressional delegation, but also in in uh, in City Hall and or in in the city and in Albany, uh, who've all been really generous with their time. All right, in closing, that, that, that's a good list there. It sounds like you've uh, you've been getting getting a lot of helping thoughts and, and hands there. Um, didn't have a lot of time to dig in on more of those housing issues, but we'll talk about that down the line another time. Uh, let me let me come back in closing to to something we we sort of started with your work on. Um, democracy related issues. I wanted to ask you about um, the sort of Supreme, the Supreme Court and public corruption cases. And there have been some of these cases that have come out of your your former office at the Southern District of New York under uh, former U.S. Attorney Pre Perara. There have been some cases that have been overturned. It seems like the Supreme Court is is perhaps on the way to overturning other public corruption convictions. What do you make of that trend? Was this is this about shifting norms under a, a more conservative Supreme Court? Is this about some overreach brought by SDNY? What do you what do you make of some of this? Because it, it's it's thrown a lot of uh, a lot of stuff up in the air here, and it seems like there's more to come. Uh, you're, you're absolutely right. It, you know, uh, from the um, McDonald opinion, uh, which clarified what the uh, standard is for uh, honest services fraud for public corruption cases federally, now on through to, you know, the Buffalo Billions case, which is we're waiting an opinion on. Um, it, it is an area that I think needs clarification from Congress. Um, I, I think it it is a little um, it's it's not specific in the statutes are not as specific as they could and should be. Um, and so this is an area that I'm excited to dive into based on my experience as a federal prosecutor. So my understanding of how the criminal laws work, how they're implemented. Um, and I can use that, I think, to you know help hopefully work across the aisle because um, this is just a fundamental issue where we cannot have our elected officials uh, abusing their power for the personal gain for themselves or you know families or associates. And this is conduct that um, is is absolutely must be prohibited. And I think that Congress has a significant role in clarifying 
the statutes that would apply so that it's not left in this limbo that the Supreme Court uh, has filled the gaps. Um, you know, there and and so I do look forward, you know, at some point to trying to dig into some of our public corruption stat- statutes, because, you know, one of the foundations uh, of my campaign and, and of what I hope to be my representation is going to be to stand up to corruption and whether that corruption is from, you know, election deniers or right wing Republicans whether it's from corporate bad actors, whether it's from powerful special interests such as the NRA and the gun manufacturers and gun dealers, you know, we have to make sure that our that those either elected officials or others who engage in corruption are held to account. And we need to be uh, aggressive in doing so. And I think that Congress uh, it would be welcome for Congress to intervene on some of these public federal public corruption statutes. Okay. We're going to leave it there. We'll come back to that another time and see see what your thinking is on that down the line, because those are obviously uh, very important issues to New York, uh, as we've seen in, in many cases, um, some some that have stayed and some that have not stuck. Um, but a very big, very big to do list for you, Dan Goldman. So we'll be looking forward to seeing how your work begins in Washington and, and where a lot of this um, settles in, in terms of your committee assignments and a lot more. But thank you for taking the time here. We'll be uh, checking in with you in 2023. Good luck uh, getting officially seated down there. Any any quick prediction on who the House Speaker will be? Oh, I have no idea. I'm uh, I'm watching uh, I'm watching like you are, uh, like we all are, to see you know how this uh, this develops. But I think what it shows is how difficult it's going to be for the Republicans to manage the majority. And, um, you know, I think the Americans should be paying attention to what their priorities are and what they actually are able to accomplish. Mm-hmm. Dan Goldman is a Democrat who's about to represent New York's new 10th congressional district in the U.S. House of Representatives. That includes lower Manhattan and a big stretch of Brooklyn. Dan Goldman, thanks again for taking the time and we'll be in touch. Thanks, Ben. Thanks so much for having me. 